right. Well, welcome back to Old Testament Survey. This is our third class. And so this morning we're getting into the patriarchal era. Last week was the creation portion of the redemptive story as it unfolds, the story of God and his people in the Old Testament. So I hope some of you, after the first week, got a chance to do the homework and read through Acts 7 and Acts 13 and interact with the way in which the apostles, when they were preaching, they preached from the whole Old Testament story and connected that Old Testament story to the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, So if you got a chance to do that, that's great. If you didn't, go do that this week. Go look back at at the notes from the very first week and you'll see the text and you can do that yourself and study and feel the impact of that kind of reflection. Well, uh, the time has come, and maybe, maybe it awakens trepidation and fear, but the time has come for us to see if we have learned the song. Are we ready to sing the nine eras of Old Testament history, affectionately dubbed the OT Hokey? All right, how many of us are ready for this? Okay, this might not be that great. All right, we ready? Creation, patriarch, exodus. Y'all take it. Conquest, judges, kingdom, exile. Now do the names. Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samson, David. Daniel, Ezra, Pharisees. Great. Some of you have got the O.T. Hokey down. All right. If you don't even know what we're talking about, I'm sorry for scaring you this way, but you can go back to, to week one and listen to the O.T. Hokey. It's all there. And, and you can look at the notes from that first week and see the names and the events. And I've given you homework today, again, that is going to show you, I think, in a very palpable and concrete way, the value of the Otihoki. You're going to read verse 1 of Ruth. You're going to read Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and the question is, I'm asking you, where are you on the ground of the story of the Old Testament? What's come before? What's come after? What's going on in history? And if you know the Otihoki, you'll be able to answer that question. So there is real value. It's not that we just enjoy singing hokey songs, but there's actual value in these kinds of things, um, strange as it may sound. All right, well, this week we come to Genesis chapter 12, patriarchal period. We last week looked at Genesis 1 through 11, which is creation and the fall. Um, Remember the overarching story of the whole Bible in one sentence is God is bringing his people into his place under his rule to live in his blessing. That's the overarching story of the whole Bible. That's the story, the unfolding story of God and his people in the Old Testament. Now that said, in in the opening 11 chapters of Genesis, Again, you've seen patterns in place. You've seen God's goodness. You've seen man's rebellion against that benevolent kingship and lordship of God over his created world. So you've seen God's goodness, man's constant rebellion, tenacious disobedience against God. And then following that rebellion, you continue to see acts in which God is bringing judgment and grace. So you can look. I'm not going to read through those, but I, I gave you those three bullets there to go back and consider the ways in which there's 
man's rebellion, and God responds with actions of judgment and grace, often mixed in the very same moment. The ark is bobbing in the waters of judgment. So there is judgment in one act, and in that very same moment, there is a display of grace. There is an ark. There are people saved in that ark. So there are ways in which we see those patterns already locked into place. Now, the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover really the biggest portion of human history. There is more human history that passes in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis than from Genesis 12 until October 28, 2011. 4,000 years, roughly, of time between Genesis 12 and now. Genesis 1 to 11, the first day of creation until the moment Abraham shows up on the scene is probably all biblical scholars on this, even those of young earth and old earth views, both affirm that there was much more time that passed between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11. All that simply to say that time slows down in Genesis 12. Everything slows down. The next 39, just to give you a sense of this, the next 39 chapters of Genesis only deal with four generations. A great-grandpa and grandpa and the dad and the sons of Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's sons. And it zooms in primarily on Joseph. So four generations are going to be the next 39 chapters. So this is a really, really significant moment. That's why time slows down so much here. You know, thinking about the significance of the patriarchal period, God names himself in this way. He names himself in connection with the patriarchal period. God doesn't refer to himself in the scriptures as the God of Adam or the God of Noah, but he frequently refers to himself as what? The God of Abraham or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all would simply underscore the fact that this is a very significant moment. I don't think it's overstating it to say that until Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, there will not be a more significant moment in Old Testament history than what happens in Genesis 12. One Old Testament scholar said it this way, the very first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, everything after Genesis 12, 1 to 3, flows from Genesis 12, 1 to 3, is a fulfillment of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. So we cannot overstate the significance of this, this period of time. Now, before we get to what God actually promised Abraham and the significance of that for New Testament life, for our lives, the, the relationship between that and the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, we're going to get to that in a moment. But before we get there, I want us just to to reckon with the, the sense in which Genesis 12 comes as a surprise. Genesis 12 itself is surprising feature. Uh, if you take the holiness of God seriously, you're surprised when you get to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And I'm realizing I don't have my Bible. I th- is it back in the back? Do you see a Bible back by that computer? Yeah, that'll work if mine's not back there. No? Hey, toss it. All right. So if we take the holiness of God seriously, then, then there's a real sense in which Genesis 12 comes as a surprise. And, and it's hard to read the first 11 chapters of Genesis and not to take the holiness of God seriously. Uh, We're only three chapters in, 
and a third of the angels have been cast out of heaven, no redemption is offered. It's an act of justice. It's an act of judgment from a holy God. Curses have fallen on man and woman, on creation. Curses are expressing themselves in marriage, in childbearing, in all forms of work and labor and toil under the sun. So if you don't like certain aspects about your job, those things that you don't like about your job and the bad attitude you have about it both originate in the curse in Genesis chapter 12. So there is this, this transcendently holy God who, who doesn't play. He doesn't play with sin. And then the flood comes and then the Tower of Babel and there's confusion of languages. It's impossible to read the first 11 chapters and not to take the holiness of God seriously. He is acting in righteousness and judgment against sinful humanity. And then as you get through from, from Genesis 11 and you move ahead, it transitions and begins to just follow this lineage somewhere. It moves from chapter 11, and I know that where this is on my page, but I don't know where it is on this page. Is it verse 10? Yes. From verse 10, it begins to trace this genealogy somewhere, and it follows from Noah through Shem, and then we end up in verse 27 where we bump into a man named Terah. And this is the patriarch of a family, and they're living in modern-day Iraq, Ur of the Chaldees in, in Babylon. Now, what do we know about Terah and his family? We know that Terah is an idol worshiper, and we know that Terah has a son named Abram. I'm going to call him Abraham for the rest of our time, even though later his name became Abraham. But he has a son named Abraham, and his son follows in his footsteps and is also an idol worshiper. And we get that from Joshua 24, 2. This should be in your notes. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. This family moved from Ur of the Chaldees up the Fertile Crescent and resided in Haran. And so you get that as you're reading through the opening chapters of Genesis. And then at the end of Genesis 11, Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So Terah dies. And in the very next verse, God is speaking to Terah's idol-worshiping son named Abraham. This comes as a complete surprise. It comes out of nowhere. One wonders as you come to Genesis 12, why is God in Haran? What is God doing speaking to an idol worshiper named Abram in Genesis chapter 12? It doesn't make any sense. We're not expecting this. And then you get in close to the conversation. We're going to read these verses in just a moment. You get in close and you realize this is not a dialogue. It's a monologue. God is not interviewing Abraham as a potential candidate for blessing. He is promising blessing to an idol worshiper. That's what's going on in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Let's read this eminently significant moment in Old Testament history. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, 
and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God just begins to make massive promises to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm your exceeding great reward. And lest Abraham break in and say, wow, thank you, God says, I'm not done. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. So these are massive promises. Now let's explore this covenant together, the Abrahamic covenant. A crucial lesson that we learn right out of the gate from the Abrahamic covenant is that the gospel precedes the law. Grace comes before commands everywhere in scripture. God acts in saving grace and then he calls his saved people to walk with him in righteousness. And the order is never reversed, even, as you'll learn next week, even in the Exodus, in the period in which the law is given. The law is given in a way that grace precedes it. He brings us up out from the land of Egypt. It's an act of mighty saving grace and mercy. And then he says, this is how I am. This is how I want you to live. Law always comes after Imperatives of holiness are always rooted in the indicatives of grace. That's always the case, and it is here as well. God begins to just make promises to Abraham, not saying, if you perform this way, I'm going to bless you in this way. It's not this for that. It's, Abraham, I am God. Here's what I'm going to do for you. You didn't ask me to do this. I'm just going to do it. And that's, that's the orientation from the very beginning. Oftentimes, people will, will contrast the, quote, God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And, and I, I really would love to see that idea get a proper burial uh, because it, it leads us to read the scriptures in a distorted way and it leads us to see God in a distorted way. That's a distorted view of God. God doesn't begin to become gracious and merciful in the New Testament. There is much mercy from God throughout the Old Testament. And lest we think that there's only wrath in the Old Testament, all we need is a quick jog to Revelation 14 to have that concept cleared up very, very quickly. Uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. The New Testament doesn't alter the character of God. God is God in the Old Testament. He is God in the New Testament. He is a God of mercy and of justice and of wrath on both sides of the divide between the Testaments. So, the Old Testament is not a story where God's people walk with him on the basis of law-keeping, only to have God in the New Testament change the rules and say, from now on, I'm going to soften up. I've been a little harsh. I'm going to soften up, and now let's relate on the basis of grace. It was on the basis of grace from Genesis 12, right? It was actually on the basis of grace from even before then, but from the very first moment that God begins to relate in a covenantal relationship, in a promise relationship with his people, it begins with grace, not with law, not with spiritual performance, and that's the way it was from the very beginning. If the Old Testament was the story only of God relating to us, to his people on the basis of law, then Adam and Eve would have bit the fruit in the morning, the fruit of disobedience, and they would have spent that afternoon and the rest of eternity in hell for their high-handed disobedience against a God who had been only gracious to them. 
but God is a God of mercy in the Old Testament, and he reveals the power of his grace and his forbearance and his patience with his people. So what we discover in Genesis 12 is that God's relationship with his people is, grows out of the character of God's grace. It's sovereign grace from the very beginning. Abraham doesn't ask God to come. God, if you will, interrupts Abraham's idol worship to come and begin to make these promises. Abraham is is a sinner like everyone else on the planet. But by the end of Genesis 12, he is not just a sinner, he is God's sinner. And he has been, this idol worshiper has been claimed by God. Uh, a story which should sound gloriously familiar to all of us. That's what happens. God comes in grace and in kindness to Abraham. So Abraham did not work his way into this relationship. He believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was, like you and I, justified by faith, not by works of the law. That has never changed from the very beginning. He was justified by faith. All right, so what did God promise Abraham? The fourfold promise, you can see this unfolding in just those few verses. There's a promise of people and a seed. I will make you, verse... Two, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. There's a promise of protection in the first part of verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. There's a promise of a redemptive program that God is putting together that is going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. There's a program of global blessing in verse 3 the second half of verse 3, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And there's a promise of land. God is going to bring his people into his place under his rule. There's a promise of land. You can see that in verse 1 when he says, leave your country. I've got some land that I want to give you. And then you see in verse 7, as Abraham is traveling, the Lord appeared to Abram as he came into Shechem the time it was owned by the Canaanites, and he came into Shechem, it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land, the land of Canaan, the promised land. So those are the four blessings. Now these blessings are going to be realized and fulfilled in concrete ways to differing degrees throughout the course of Israel's history, but, but these promises definitely aren't microwavable. They are not just instant, you just call it into being and there it is, all of a sudden Abraham's got land, the Canaanites are coming and saying, we just want to give you just all this, just, you're just going to own this. As far as the eye can see, Abraham, it's all yours. Uh, no, these promises are going to be fulfilled very, very progressively. So for example, if you just want to flip over, not that we'll read these verses, but flip over to chapter 15 of Genesis and God reaffirms his promise to Abraham, you're going to have a son. Now, when you move from Genesis 15 to Genesis 16, 10 years have passed. And the only thing Abraham has to show for those last 10 years are more aches and pains, more wrinkles, right? He, is, he doesn't have a son. It's been 10 years since the promise, and he still doesn't have a son. You come to the end of chapter 16, the very last verse of chapter 16. It says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 
And when you read the very next verse of the very next chapter, when Abraham was 99 years old, we've just thrown 13 more years in the dumpster, right? 13 more years of waiting and still no land, no sons, no experience of these promised blessings have been concretely realized and fulfilled in Abraham's own experience. And authored and pastor Dale Ralph Davis, I think, captures this beautifully. He says, so by dropping 13 years into the dumpster of history between chapters 16 and 17, the writer underscores the struggle of Abraham's faith. What happened in those 13 years? Oh, what had happened during the previous decade plus? Abraham played veterinarian to his goats, settled scraps among his herdsmen, sat up with Sarah when she had the flu, sent scouts out to look for water sources for the flocks. In short, all the sorts of things one does in the wash your face, brush your teeth, go to work routine of daily living. And year follows year that way. And Yahweh's promise goes unfulfilled. Is the writer not telling us that time can be a severe problem for faith? that it can be hard to go on believing when you have to walk on an ordinary, run-of-the-mill living without seeing any of the fireworks of promise. The reason that Abraham shows up in the faith chapter of Hebrews chapter 11 is not because Abraham heard God speak and started to speak the blessing and claim the blessing right now in his life as though suddenly everything just began to change because he's thinking positively and speaking positively. The reason he and others are in the faith chapter in Hebrews 11 is because God spoke, they believed it, and they waited. And while they waited, they trusted. And year after year after year passes, and they continue to trust in God, imperfectly, but trust nonetheless. And that's why they're in the hall of faith now, what is it about this promise that causes Abraham to rise to the occasion and say, I trust you, God, despite the circumstances of all the years that have passed, my age, Sarah's age, all of this, despite that, I believe you. It, it's because of something that happens in Genesis chapter 15, Godness on the line. God makes a promise in chapter 12. He makes a promise in chapter 15, and this time in chapter 15, he seals that promise with a covenant ceremony. He seals it with an oath. He makes a vow. He engages in this covenant, covenant act. Dr. R.C. Sproul, I remember listening to a lecture. I was driving in my car listening to a lecture from Dr. R.C. Sproul when he said, if you asked me that, and told me that I could only have one book of the entire Bible to spend the rest of my life with, he said, my answer would be, give me the book of Genesis. He said, if you told me I could only have one chapter of that book, what would it be? And he said, it would be Genesis 15. He said, if you only gave me one verse of one chapter in the whole Bible to meditate on, it would be Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. And of course, I wanna pull the car over and just wait, what is this verse going to say? And he reads Genesis 15, 17, and it says this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between 
the pieces. Now, if you're like me, once he read that, I thought, why that verse? You know, that didn't make sense to me. I was thinking of all these other great verses that I was expecting, and I thought something awesome was going to happen in this verse, and for me, it didn't, until he began to explain the significance of this covenant ceremony. What is going on in verse 17 of chapter 15? God is making a covenant with Abraham. And when a covenant was made, an animal or animals would be cut, would be killed, cut asunder and divided and separated on either side with an aisle in between. And the parties of that covenant, this is what we do in a wedding ceremony, by the way, would pass between the aisles, would pass between those representative parts of that cut and divided animal. And they would pass between the, the pieces. And as they would walk between those pieces, they would, they would utter solemn vows they would state the terms of the covenant. And there was tremendous gravity because what is implied by these animals being divided and their passing and stating the terms of the covenant is if I should break the terms of this covenant, may I be destroyed as these animals. May I be cut asunder, utterly annihilated. That's the gravity of this promise. And we come to Genesis 15 and we discover God is doing this. You can see that in verse 7, I believe it is. No, verse 9. Let's just read what happens here. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other, the birds. However, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Again, he's just waiting. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. He's referring to the period of the Exodus, where we're going next. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So, passing between the pieces are the parties of the covenant. Traditionally, that's what happens. Now, in the Old Testament, one of the primary theophanies, which is a theophany is a manifestation, a visible manifestation of the presence of the invisible God. And one of the primary theophanies of the Old Testament is fire. God leads his people through the wilderness and there is this pillar of fire. And that represents it is God who is leading the way into God's land. He is carrying his people through the wilderness, right? Moses is spoken to from God, from the midst of the fire of the burning bush. And what is it that passes between these pieces, stating the terms of the covenant? It is a smoking fire. Where is Abraham? Parties are supposed to pass between the pieces, and yet Abraham is doing what right now? Sleeping. Abraham is utterly inactive. God himself is the only one passing 
in the midst of the sacrifice, making the promise. This is a one-directional promise of grace. This is not God saying, Abraham, you keep your side, I'll keep my side. Abraham is sleeping, and God says, I'm going to do this by myself. I'm going to do this for the sake of my own name, no matter what you do. And that happens frequently throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You'll hear the prophets coming in periods of deep darkness and idolatry among Israel. And God reminds them, I'm still going to keep my promise to Abraham, not for your sake. If I was doing this and getting my motivation from your obedience and you're keeping the terms of your side of the covenant, then I would stop this right now. But for the sake of my name, because I made a promise by myself, I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to give you land, sons, offspring, bless the nations through you. God is fulfilling this promise. It is a promise of sheer grace. And when someone, even in our culture, when someone wants to convince another person that they're going to keep their promise, they may appeal to something greater than themselves. They may swear by their mother's grave. They may swear by all that is sacred. Swear by the health of my children, right? That's when you want that other person to know, listen, this is not some sloppy promise. I intend to keep this promise. And Hebrews 6 draws out the significance of this moment when it says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God could make no more solemn oath than to pass between these pieces and to say, I swear by my own holy character. His godness was on the line. He was saying, if I don't keep the promise to Abraham, I am not God. That's how sturdy this promise is. Read the rest with me of Hebrews 6. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have all kinds of verses in our memory banks of assurance. Verses that God is going to be faithful, right? Verses like Philippians 1.6. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. If God didn't keep his promise to Abraham, Philippians 1.6 is meaningless. On God's own terms, God set it up that way. God put his godness on the line and said, I am going 
to do this by myself for the glory of my name and for the blessing of my people. If God lied to Abraham, then he is shown to be less than God. So God shows and makes it abundantly clear in this moment that he intends to fulfill this fourfold promise and nothing is going to stop him. He is going to perform this promise. And the rest is history. When you consider the gravity of this promise that God is making to the patriarch, to Abraham, no wonder Abraham believes God and it's counted to him for righteousness. No wonder when God says, give me your son Isaac, your only son, the son whom you love. No wonder Abraham starts walking up Mount Moriah. And even if he ends up sacrificing Isaac, he knows the child of promise cannot stay dead. God's godness is on the line. He is going to be true. I was asleep when he made the promise. It's not contingent on my virtue, on my ability to perform from my side of things. God is going to do it. And so up the hill he went with his son. On the altar he placed his son because he trusted this God has given me strong reason to trust him, strong consolation. No wonder Abraham in Genesis chapter 23 put such a high priority on buying land in Canaan. His wife Sarah dies and Abraham spends a lot of money to buy a cave, the cave of Machpelah. And he buys this cave, why? Location, location, location. (laughs) He buys this cave because Machpelah is where? It's in Canaan. And God promised Abraham, I'm going to give Canaan to your people. So Abraham pulls wads of money out and says, my wife is dead. I want a burial plot in Canaan. No wonder when the family later on, all through the Joseph incident, Joseph ends up in Egypt, prosperity, famine in the land. They're going to die if they stay out there. And so Joseph says, I'm offering you the riches of Egypt. I'll take care of you. Come, move the family over here. And they moved over there and it preserved that generation of Israel. But no wonder when Jacob dies, he says, right before he dies, once I drop dead, bring me to Machpelah. Bring me back home. Put my bones in Canaan land. Why? Because God made a promise that that people would own land in Canaan. And it began small. They owned land enough to fit their coffins in. But that was a start. And from then on, God's promises would be unfurling, would be unfolding. And he would work it out in such a way that at the end of the day, God's people would be in Canaan land occupying Canaan land, the land of milk and honey, crossing over the Jordan and saying, this land is our land. God has given us this land. God keeps his promises. God was bringing his people into his place under his rule and blessing. He was going to keep his promise to Abraham. And again, the New Testament sees the coming of Christ as the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. It completely thinks of that in relation to the Old Testament unfolding story. Consider the incarnation. 
promise is made to Mary. Angel comes and says, you're going to give birth to the Christ child. Mary sings the Magnificat, right? And what does she say? Where does her mind go when she's promised the Christ child? What does she say? Luke 1.54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In other words, Mary, where are you going with this? Where am I going with the promise of the Christ child? 2,000 years back to Abraham. I'm going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God has fulfilled his promise. It's happening now. Zechariah does the same thing later in the same chapter. His response is, God has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. You know, sometimes Christians, for 2,000 years after Jesus, right, people since the times of the New Testament have been looking for the return of Christ, haven't they? We all. I remember thinking as a child, there is no way I'm going to die before Jesus comes back. He'll come back any one of these days. And Christians throughout history have believed that, have looked for that coming, and have wrestled, I think if we're all honest, have wrestled with doubts as we get older. Is he? Maybe he won't come back right now. Not that I'm doubting he's going to come back, but it's kind of look, I've seen so many others before me, grandparents, great-grandparents, who told me this, and now they're dead. We're 2,000 years after these promises were made that Jesus is going to come back in the way that he went up. They were positioned in the exact same, in a real sense, place. The promises made in Genesis chapter 12 had been largely unrealized. There were moments of Israel's history where it looked really good, but right now they're under occupation. They don't have a land. The Romans own everything, right? There's no one on David's throne. All these promises just seem to just be hanging in space in limbo, and they're 2,000 years later. And, And into this moment comes an angel saying, now it happens. 2,000 years later, God keeps his promise. The apostolic era connects to the Old Testament story as well. In Acts chapter 10, God comes into this moment with Peter. He gives a vision to Peter, and he says, Peter, I want you to go and meet a Gentile named Cornelius. It's time for all the nations of the world to be blessed through the promise of Abraham. It's time for the nations of the earth to hear the gospel and be included. And and so Paul writes in 48, roughly 48 AD, he writes a letter to Galatians. And these Galatians are largely Gentile believers. And what does Paul say to this large group of Gentile believers? He says, think of yourselves as sons and daughters of Abraham. Think of yourselves not as Gentiles outside the family of God, but as a part of one with the covenant family of God's age-old people. You are fully included in that. Translation, the blessing that God said through you, Abraham, through your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul was saying in stark and clear terms, 
that is happening now in the world. Gentiles are being ushered into the covenant that God made with Abraham. Galatians 3.14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive <clears throat> the promised spirit through faith. And we look to Christ's return. From where we are in the movement of human history, we look forward to Christ's return. And what happens at the return of Christ? All the promises of Genesis 12 and forward are fully experienced, are fully consummated and realized in our experience. There will be land as real as Canaan. There will be land. There will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Part of Genesis 12, right? And God will be our exceeding great reward. God will have, at the end of the day, fulfilled every one of his promises to Abraham. All right, well, next week is going to be the Exodus. Look at your homework. Read Ruth 1.1. Answer that question. We'll come back next week and study the Exodus. Thanks for being here.